All right, guys, I'm Nicolette, and today Brian and I are here with Ben Waters. He is the CEO and co-founder of Ybotic, and they are working on some pretty cool robotic power solutions, and and they're working with NASA, and you're doing a lot of fun stuff over there, Ben. So um, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about yourself, first and foremost, and kind of that journey to Ybotic. How did we get here? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Nicolette and Brian. Happy to be here. And uh, the Ybotic journey, yes. So Mm -hmm. Ybotic's mission is to power the world of automation. Uh, Businesses have been realizing some of the advantages of automation for for many years now. And a lot of them think about how we scale up. How do we go from this proof of concept, few robots, few drones doing some task to a fleet that is truly, you know, changing the bottom line for our business. And as we've learned, one of the big bottlenecks is the fact that all of these vehicles, robots, drones, material handling machines have batteries and batteries are a major point of failure. If a battery goes dead on a robot, your very expensive, you know, robot operation is going to be not so helpful. So Wybotic has really tried to focus on solving this power problem for autonomous systems. And the journey started about six years ago back at the University of Washington. That's where I uh, got a PhD in electrical engineering. I was researching wireless power technology actually for implanted medical devices, trying to power devices through the body inside that helped people, in this case, with with end-stage heart failure. I was working on a device called a ventricular assist device. And as I got closer to graduating and I was thinking about, you know, what to do next, was looking at some jobs and was thinking about being entrepreneurial and um, an opportunity arose in robotics. We spoke to some companies while we were still in grad school about this problem of robots docking and charging against physical contacts um, and the fact that those contacts can wear out, need to be replaced, be a huge bottleneck, fail unexpectedly. And as they want to grow, they were looking to wireless charging to solve some of those problems around the same time when cell phone wireless charging was was becoming mainstream back in you know, 2015, 2016. So uh, flash forward six years later, and we've built out a very large ecosystem of products, uh, some of which we're announcing some new ones this week. Um, Ybotic develops hardware to do the actual charging for these devices we develop software that manages the charging across a big fleet, which is an important piece of the puzzle because imagine a warehouse where you've got 100 robots and 50 chargers coordinating which charger to go to, how to charge in a way that actually optimizes the, the system and doesn't necessitate a lot of downtime or waiting in line for charging. Um, becomes a really interesting problem that we've, we've developed some solutions to help with that. So uh, that's Wybotic in a, in a nutshell. So, so okay. First question: What type of wireless charging are we talking about? <laughs> so, yep. So, Wybotic, uh, the wireless charging is is a piece of our solution. We actually do do desktop based charging and contact based mm-hmm. charging to some extent nowadays. But the wireless charging itself, which is our core, you know, core core technology in the company, um, is similar to an inductive system like you see for cell phones, with two major differences. One being the power level. 
So cell phones typically operate at five to 10 watts of power. Mm -hmm. Electric vehicles, on the other hand, are five to 10 kilowatts of power. But there's this middle range, which is fairly underserved. And that's where a lot of robots live in terms of how big their batteries are and how much power they need to charge those batteries in a reasonable amount of time. So Wibotic deals with typically we say between 100 to 1,000 watts. That's how much power we can transmit wirelessly. And the second big advantage is the flexibility. As you'll probably know from firsthand experience, your, your cell phone charging pad really has to be very close. Yeah. And if you move it a little bit, it just your phone charging icon, you know, goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, with Wibotic system, we afford tens of centimeters of positional flexibility, um, which for a robot trying to dock against something on a wall with a LIDAR where the whole wall basically looks the same from the robot's perspective, having this this flexibility either in the, the distance between the antennas or, you know, the lateral offset between the antennas is, is really key. And, and it goes without saying for a drone too, right? Drones mm-hmm. landing in the wind, good luck being accurate to a millimeter every single time. But that, that 10 centimeter-ish range makes a big difference for those types of things. So those are the, the two big differences between the way we do wireless charging. Right. So you mentioned antennas. Is it is it um is it like, you know, when it's it's a plate, like if we talk about the cell phone charger, so it's a plate that the the robot or the vehicle is going to sit on, or is it can it sit above it slightly? Yep. Yeah. So typically we are our system has two components on the docking station side and two components that get integrated with the robot. Mm-hmm. The antennas are two of those components. So we have a transmitter antenna and a receiver antenna. And those are wound inductors, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they get close to one another, that's where the wireless power transfer takes place. So typically for a drone application, the transmit antenna would be embedded, you know, beneath the surface of a drone charging pad. And the receiver antenna might be extended below the, the the main compartment of the drone or it might be mounted on one of the landing gears of the drone and then when they when the drone lands they they get close enough for power transfer right similarly for a robot the receiver antenna might be integrated on the front of the robot or just behind the plastic shell of the robot um, and it can drive up to the wall so our there's a lot of different ways that our system can be implemented uh, really just depends on kind of where there's space on the vehicle, how it makes sense for that particular vehicle to think about docking. Um, but at the end of the day, it can be done in a number of ways. Brian, are you going to ask that question oh, totally that you asked? asked? So we, we've always, we, okay. uh, we, we talked about this with, uh, with Jim Witham, Jim who's Witham president, from president of GAN. Yeah. And we, you know, think about drone delivery, right? So, when you have drone delivery, you don't really necessarily want to dock your drone somewhere. Is it that it's going to be hovering while charging? Do you know what I mean? So, you know, yeah. whatever it's, it's on top of, I'm just making this up, but you have an electric pole, you have your antenna there, you know, cause you already have the power source and you're hovering, you know, versus actually stopping. Do you see that yeah. as being part of some of this, even maybe with vehicles, you know, where they could charge while they're sort of semi in motion. I want to say, I don't want to say really in motion. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that, you know, we've thought about a lot. Um, 
I think the the science aspect of it is super cool and helpful. The practicality aspect of it is where it starts to get tricky. And I'll just give a, an example of that. So when a drone is operating, right, it's consuming a lot of power relative to the weight of its vehicle, you know, of itself. A drone needs to use a lot of energy to, to stay flying, especially if it's got a payload like a package on it. Right. Um, and stay so let's stable. just say, for example, a small to medium-sized drone, you know, while it's flying might be consuming 200 watts, just a random number, probably accurate for a drone of a certain size. Um, so now if you're thinking about charging that vehicle while it's flying, not only do you have to send enough power to cover the power that it needs to fly, but then you also need to send power that would charge the battery. Compare that to an example where a drone lands. Now it doesn't have that extra overhead of 200 watts of power that you need to deliver to it. Um, All the energy that you deliver to it can just go to the battery. So that gets really tricky as you think about bigger and bigger vehicles, because now you're having to send a lot more power. Now that means your charging pad is going to need a bigger power source itself. And if these things are remotely deployed, you know, that gets tricky. So there's a lot of little practical power challenges related to that. And and I say that not to say that there's not a use case where it absolutely makes sense. Just most of the applications that we've seen for beyond visual line of sight, autonomous drone charging are a scenario in which a drone lands, charges, and then continues on. For drone delivery, for example, that could still be very useful, right? Like if a drone could, if a drone never had the ability to charge while it's out delivering a package, it's only going to be able to go half as far as its battery can allow, which might only be a couple miles from the site where it took off. But if you have these pads where it can land, charge, keep going, just for the sake of charging, now you can deliver packages much farther away. So we typically think about it as a land and charge just just so that you're 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 increasing efficiencies. You know, I really like how Elon Musk thinks about charging for for vehicles. Anything even remotely less efficient times millions of cars and the amount of power that they consume. I mean, are we really doing our world a service for energy efficiency? Right. Um, and, and- so- that's yeah. the one thing to think about. Yeah, no, and you're right, because at that point, you know, you're dedicating the entire charging to the drone where if it's, you know, if it's hovering, you're you're spending a lot of energy for it to just hover, you know, where it's not really that efficient. So here's my next question. You also mentioned, <laughs> you also mentioned, right? I going, told you he was going to get excited. Yeah, I'll question. <laughs> so you also mentioned them having, um, you know, there's multiple chargers. Say you're in a warehouse situation. So you have a hundred, you know, autonomous vehicles, right? Some are charging, some are working, some are charging, some are working. So how, how are you coordinating? Like, how is the AI working, right? Are you guys building the AI that helps them coordinate? Like, okay, time for me to charge. You know, they know they're getting low. Time for me to charge. How do I find a dock that's open? You know, and one that's efficient for it, right? Because I'm assuming there is, depending if you have various different types of robots at, you know, powering up at different levels or different battery capacities, you're going to have multiple types of chargers, I would I would assume, but maybe not, or some that are deploying at different wattage. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And, and here's, a, here's a trend that we typically see. So 
you know, we'll get a call from a company who says, um, we've, we've got, you know, three different types of robots that they're using, uh, that we're using, you know, we have a floor cleaning robot, we have a material handling robot, and then we have a robot that operates, you know, in the back room and moves things around just in the back room. And they all are built by different companies and they all have their own charging station. And this is a huge pain for our business because if a worker happens to move one of those charging stations, then we have to go figure out which charging station it was, log in, you know, reposition the waypoint for where that charging station was. And this is not going to work when we have thousands of these things. Um, So we get into these types of discussions a lot. And really the companies, I mean, mean, if you're an end user of a, of a warehouse system, you know, you, you probably don't care so much about how the charging is getting done. So long as it's just getting done, but you probably care about the fact that you don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden you might have all your robots with dead batteries and they all go need to charge at the same time, you know? So how do you avoid this type of thing gets really hard because you don't have control over it necessarily. Your robots might operate one way one day and a different way another day. And eventually the perfect storm comes together where they all have dead batteries and in the middle of the work shift, there's nothing that you can use. Um, so the way that we think about it is in two ways. One, you know, our systems are interoperable, meaning you could have a, a floor cleaning robot and a material handling robot, potentially with totally different batteries, but if equipped with a robotic onboard charger, those robots can go to the same charging station. The, the charging functionality of our system is battery agnostic. We can charge any type of battery and the transmitter, when it when any robot docks to the transmitter, we just power it up. Um, so from a hardware perspective, you know, we've, we've architected the system in a way that is amenable to that type of operation. And from a software perspective, if you just think of one-to-one, like one robot and one charger, we're aware when there's a robot in range of that one charger. And we're also aware when that charger is available. So we can extend some basic data points about charger availability and charger location to the the robot itself. We have a communication layer that allows the robot to talk to our charging infrastructure. Um, So if you take that and multiply it by hundreds or thousands of, of robots, they're there start to become some really interesting trends and and we pay attention to those trends we store log files of every single charge cycle and and track the overall fleet uptime just from a pure charging perspective like number of minutes robot spends charging divided by number of minutes robot spends operating and how does that trend over time and it's it's very spiky as you might imagine um, so we sort of have a database we leverage that information we also don't say that there's one way to do it for every single application. It really does depend on the specific warehouse and how utilized the robots are and how big the battery on those robots is. Um, so my point being, there's a lot of interesting data points that exist to figure out how to optimize that logistics for a given setup. Um, and 
we try to be the company to help folks do that. So do most companies then actually go and create like a charging room or a charging area? So it's like, here's the one area, here's the one wall, because, you know, I can imagine like, say, for instance, you're using drones and maybe it's, you know, it's a plate. So it's landing on it and some robots, you know, they're, they're rolling up on it. But say, for instance, you have something like, um, like a Boston Dynamics, maybe the charging is on the back end of it and it can't really get flat to the ground. So it, is it they when you work with them, they're creating charging areas where some's in the wall, some may be in the wall, some may be on the ground, some may be even coming down from above, depending on the types of robots they're currently using? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Totally, totally depends on both the physical constraints that the robot might have. You know, surprise, surprise, charging usually gets left towards the end of a development effort to get integrated and tested and optimized to figure out to figure out where they're charging yeah um so we're always working around you know oh where should it go given the fact that this thing's basically already been built and well how does that i mean why does that happen why is it such an afterthought that that's a good question too i think that oftentimes robotics companies have a lot of work to do to just get the things to navigate correctly and then once they get the basic movement and navigation down, they're quickly sidetracked into, okay, how do we build five of these or 10 of these? Because we've got customers who want to test them out. And then they finally figure out how to build a handful of them and they get them deployed. And then the customers, you know, find issues or they say, hey, it's super annoying to have to plug this thing in every day. You know, can we get charging on this? So I think it's just simply that there's always a high priority in robotics. There's always a bug to fix. There's always a hardware problem to solve. And adding new features is just time-consuming and tricky. And, um, you know, that's an area where we've tried to say, look, it's nice to think about charging early because there's really some advantages you can think about. Brian, to to your question, there's a huge advantage, we think, to thinking about putting charging in a position that that gives you different options. Like Mm -hmm. in a warehouse, if it's on the bottom, for example, then you can create kind of a runway in a primary aisle where the robots tend to operate, where you can be charging them while they're moving. Um, But if you put it on the side, that's going to be a lot harder to do, you know? So like there's, there's little things like that, that I think can make a big difference, but oftentimes to your question, Nicolette, it just, it just is always sort of the next priority. Right. It's never yeah. the top priority until Do you think a lot of, even when they're designing them, right, especially the smaller robots, oh, they're just going to plug it into the wall. Like that's like, because you see so many of these things, their plates, you're plugging them in versus really having, you know, wireless charging or charging built into your structure. Like you're saying like that runway, you know, like, oh, it's just going to get yeah. plugged into the wall. And I think sometimes that's where probably they go wrong with designing them, you know, not thinking about like they're like you're saying the real application, like if they're moving down this aisle, that's where they should be charging, not plugged into a wall in the corner of the room or a corner of the warehouse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we've, I, I think the most successful fleets, if you're just looking at like an uptime perspective um, are the ones that, do think about it, do think about optimizing this. And and those tend to be the larger ones, right? Because at at bigger scales, these problems just really get amplified. Um, Imagine if all of a sudden 
you had 500 robots in 200 different locations around the world, all of which needed a new battery. Like, how is a robot company going to solve that problem? Are you going to just say to all those customers, okay, just ship all the robots back to our warehouse and we'll swap the battery. Like, is it even serviceable? Is it even possible to send a tech out there and open it up and swap the new battery in? And I mean, batteries are going to need to be replaced eventually. It might be one year, it might be three years, but you know, that problem at a big scale is, is hugely costly, both from just the sheer material costs of buying these batteries, shipping things around, and the, the downtime that your customer is going to naturally experience, you know, when these robots are, are getting serviced. So, so how can you avoid that? Like, maybe some companies want it to be done all at once. Maybe some companies want every week will be approaching the time at which this battery is going to need a new one, but we just will have to deal with it, you know, one at a time. Like those types of things um, are where we see a lot of success when companies really think about how to solve those problems, you know, early. Um, when when you're chasing your tail, it gets really expensive and it gets really tricky long term. Now, we see, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about warehousing and things like that and industrial stuff. Do you see this eventually rolling over into homes, right? Because as people are incorporating more and more robotic devices into their homes, are we going to have that same issue and have to work on technology for the home that works the same way? Yeah, it's one question I've enjoyed thinking about, and I, I don't have a perfect answer to it, but it is you know, how many in, let's say, 10 years, how many battery powered devices do you think you're going to have in your home? Mm -hmm. Um, Like today I've got my phone, headphones, watch, uh, you know, battery packs to charge those that I got to charge those. Um, I don't have an EV yet, but you know, maybe an EV one day, uh, five or 10 or so devices. And, and it's, it's kind of a pain, you know, there's always a day where you're like, ah, can't use my headphones because I forgot to charge them or Mm -hmm. something. Um, so like in the future, yeah, what's it going to be? Is it, is it going to be, is it going to stay the same in which case maybe people can just kind of deal with managing it or is it going to become like a hundred in which case we're all, we're all doomed unless there's really a great solution for charging these things without us having to plug them in all the time. Um, so I think as you, as you just think about those scenarios, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I think, um, I think. I think about like there needs to be some way to just see all the data about charging of all your devices. Uh, you know, we found that to be a helpful thing for the robot environment where you just, it's one interface where you see all the batteries and all the chargers and you don't have to look anywhere else. You don't have to go find where the thing is. You just, you just know it. Oh, you, know how many, you know how many no. times Roomba has like, you know, crapped out underneath my couch. You know what I mean? <laughs> it just sends this little warning signal. I'm like, where are you? Where'd you go? You know? So I have a question. So, you know, how we're, you're talking about, you know, battery agnostic. So I have a question because I really don't know the answer to it. Um, if I have my wire, my, my smartphone and I have an electric vehicle, right? You can't charge those on the same battery, right? Even if, can you? Yeah, the way battery charging, you know, works in a nutshell is that a battery, different battery types, different battery chemistries, different battery voltages, 
you know, are all made up of just how many cells are in series and parallel inside of a big pack. And so, for example, if you've got a four cell lithium ion battery, a common battery found on a drone, that battery typically will want to be charged up to about 4.2 volts per cell. So 4.2 times four um, would be the voltage that that pack wants to be charged up to. So you would have to have a charger for that battery that's capable of, of putting out that proper voltage and regulating the current that goes into it so that you're not going to, you know, overpower or overcharge that particular battery. Uh, the challenge with having chargers be battery agnostic is that you would have to have that same charger be able to accommodate right. uh, a 16-cell battery right, that right. might charge up to almost 60 volts. And that's a that's a wide range for electronics. You know, right. electronics typically... You, you pick one voltage and you design it for that because then things are simple. You don't need a lot of programmable parts or, or parts that are over-spec'd. Um, but, but that was kind of how we went into it from day one. So your original question, can a cell phone charger charge a car? Well, the or two right challenges right. can are... A car, so can a car charge a cell phone? Right. Maybe. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the voltage of a cell phone, cell phone batteries typically are just one cell. So like, you know, four charging up to 4.2 mm-hmm. volts or something like that is what you need. Whereas your car is, is much higher voltage. So, right. um, so certainly you could, and certainly there's a lot of, you know, DC to DC conversions that take place already in our cars to power from a battery pack mm-hmm. all of the stuff. Um, but generally, that's that's what makes it challenging, um, and that's often why battery chargers will just have like a narrow set of batteries that they're compatible okay. with. I mean, even ours, we we could not make our charger output 400 volts because it wasn't designed for that. And okay, and maybe you know you could stack a whole bunch of them up in series, but but still that becomes kind of a different product altogether so so i have this thought it would charge it in about three years for you nicola right <laughs> okay then, because i have this that. this thought that when you're talking about consumer and how you know how many of our devices would be would need to be charged right so i'm thinking like all right you've got even maybe your coffee maker and all of your things all of your things just are wirelessly charged and maybe you can build in those charging mats into your home right and then you just kind of throw your device like on the counter it just charges like all the time you know what i mean i just totally. have this really out yeah. there out there um thought but i, I yeah. you know i there, wasn't sure if that would even be possible i've actually seen desks there are desks that actually have well, yeah but think about it like but to, to yeah. Ben's point then right you need well, it to charge your coffee maker well, your cell phone and your whatever else is on your counter at right. the same time right well that's yep. that's where i was going with like you know you have those mats you know you have that runway like in a warehouse right. do you eventually have that in your home right where all your whatever your roomba's running off of it your little mopping version mm-hmm. of roomba's running off of it like all the things that are running around your house you know are those charging while they're going do we see that right. rolling out into the home like you're saying just a giant mat where you just right. run over it you know yeah yeah and there are definitely companies out there working on different types of wireless charging where your phone would just be charging in your pocket magically right. um, you know there's a lot of technology behind that and and typically i think there will always be a constraint on 
how much power you can send with charging mm-hmm. technology that operates like that because of the human safety element. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. charging things is a lot different so, than than getting things Wi-Fi in terms right. of how much power they right. need. Right. So, so it's not going to be like where they could charge the earth up and you could plug your light bulb into it. Like we've seen. With no, never say never. Yeah. It's been done, you know, a long time ago. And, um, uh, but yeah, I think, I think the reality of what's coming, you know, in the immediate future is, um, tables with integrated, you know, charging for specific types of appliances. Um, there is a wireless charging standard being developed for kitchen appliances. Uh, so, so speaking about that, I was that was going to be the next question. Are they're going to are you going to see more standards now? You know, within within this, as more and more things, you know, to Nicolette's point, like now you may have your your coffee pots, you know, wirelessly charged or whatever. Are we going to see more standards in other appliances? Like we see some of it with like phones and things like that, but are we going to start seeing more standards in other electronics? Yeah, I think I think definitely. Um, I think when the wireless charging standards of the world started in the cell phone space, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense, right? Phone yeah. manufacturers need to be able to put a chip in the phone, and then you know third party vendors need to be able to sell infrastructure that can can charge it. Um, it's happening with cars now; it's still ongoing, but cars will have you know charging wireless charging systems integrated with, with EVs. And then it'll be nice to be able to go park it, you know, anywhere. We already deal with this world of like, there's a million different plug-in chargers and some work with your car and some don't. And I think there's efforts to avoid that in the EV world moving forward. Um, There's a standard I mentioned on kitchen appliance being developed. There's one on e-bikes. So the tricky part is that it, because of those things we were talking about before Nicolette with like different voltages and different power levels, um, the standards sometimes have to cater to that. They, they try to be as agnostic and, you know, device and industry agnostic as possible. But at the end of the day, I think there are things that force you to have some interoperability. So, um, the other thing I think that's really interesting in standards that Wibotic has been a part of is if you look at, um, FAA stuff for, drones the faa is obviously doing a lot of great work on enhancing the ability for drones to be flown more autonomously but there's a lot of safety things that you have to keep in mind one of them is how do you deal with the standards around a battery-powered uav the commercial aviation industry with jet-fueled planes you know has had a lot of time to optimize these rules, but basically it says, if you know that your plane needs to travel this far and it's got this much weight on it, multiply that number by about 20%. And that's how much fuel you have to put in your plane. And that amount of time the plane will be able to fly with that same amount of fuel is, is pretty much always going to be the same. It, that's not the case with a battery, right? If a battery gets installed on a drone on day one, and needs to fly this far, it probably could do it. But as we know with our phones, your your phone mm-hmm. starts to only last for a few hours a day because the battery gets older. So, like, how do you deal with that? What what rules is the FAA going to have to say as far as, like, okay, when your battery gets to be, you know, 400 cycles in, then it you can't fly it for this application. It's a harder – it's a much harder problem. 
Um, so we're part of a panel actually that's kind of thinking about that. Like how much testing needs to go into a battery that will be approved for those heavy industry applications and right. things. So um, right. totally, not just in the wireless charging world, but in power in general, I think we're going to see a lot more standards. Now, so you mentioned the cycles, right? The amount of cycles that your battery goes through. But when we look at like um, smartphones, right, the, the way they produce it back out is based on the amount of life your battery has, right? So what's the difference between the cycles they're running through and the life that's left in a battery? Yeah, typically I've been fighting this on my computer. Um, <laughs> you know, so my com- on day one, let's just say your, your, your battery has 10,000 milliamp hours of capacity. You know, so that means if you if you had your laptop fully charged and your laptop consumed exactly one amp of current continuously, 10 amp hours divided by one amp leaves you with roughly 10 hours of runtime. Uh, now, that's typically not the way things work. Typically, power is always changing a little bit, but uh, that's the way to kind of think about how long a, a battery would last given its Capacity on day one of about 10 amp hours, 10,000 milliamp hours. Um, So what happens is the battery gets older and as it gets aged and as you're charging it up, it's not able to store that full 10 amp hours of energy. Um, Maybe it'll get to nine and a half amp hours. And my laptop keeps beeping at me now because it's like your battery needs to be serviced because your capacity is now at eight amp hours. Um, so it's come down, you know, a little bit. So now, even if I charge my laptop up all the way, and if I have that one amp that my laptop's consuming, it'll only last for eight hours now. Um, and it just will steadily get worse and, and how batteries decay and how they lose that over time capacity is, is special and unique to each battery and how it's used. Um, but that's the challenge, and, and typically that's what happens is you, you eat into how much total capacity your battery has over time. All right. Well, we didn't get to many of my questions today. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, I, do you have any, do you have any questions? That's to okay, because <laughs> I think we had a really, really good discussion nonetheless. So um, it was what uh, – it makes it more exciting that way, right? Um, but then please, um, you know, anything you want to leave us with, anything, uh, you want to tell us about anything that you're working on before we let you go? Yeah, no, I think we touched, we touched on a lot of cool topics. Uh, the, the, how many devices are going to be in your home questions, one that, you know, we, we think about a lot just for fun, but also for, you know, future business ideas. And, uh, and yeah, we, we, we believe that power and batteries are, going to kind of be the the new really important cool thing i mean you know there's been lidars and then there's been the vehicles themselves and it all kind of everyone's getting used to seeing these types of things now but i think the next wave of how do we actually power all this stuff at a big scale um you know buildings that have thought about this ahead of time and integrate charging infrastructure into a building um you know all the standardization that naturally will will come with these things uh, space. We didn't get a chance to talk too much about space, yeah. but, you know, imagine at least in these areas on earth where a person can go fix it in space, 
once it goes, it's, it's gone. Um, and however you've decided that it should be serviceable or work, that's, that's what it's going to be. So I think space will force people to think a lot more about these design constraints early. Um, and, uh, may even be, a example for applications here on earth in terms of how to do things right. So I really appreciate the time and the opportunity and um, hope we can chat again. Yeah, we're, we're definitely chatting again on space. Yeah, next time let's do a whole <laughs> That's really where I was going today, but Brian, we took yeah, a whole nice new level. All right, that's so okay. part two, that's part okay. two, part two. We'll make sure part you subscribe for part two with Ben. Yeah, well, Ben, thank you so much. Can you let everybody know where they can uh, check out what you guys are working on? Yeah, for sure. We are at www.wybotic.com. Uh, we post a lot of updates on LinkedIn, so please follow us on LinkedIn. Um, and if you just so happen to be in Atlanta, we are at the AUVSI Exponential Trade Show this week. And on our website, um, you can see all the trade shows that were signed up for this year. Trade show season is back, and we are excited to be uh, exhibiting at a few of them second half of this year. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben. Yeah, and you definitely got to come back, Ben. We got to talk about space. Sounds good.